Welcome to your shelf. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky Standle, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. I'm Heidi Bauer. I uh, write poetry and I teach literature at Lower Columbia College. And I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library. Thanks for coming on the show, Heidi. Thank you, Austin. It's a pleasure to be here. And welcome to our second podcast of National Poetry Month. That's right. Before we jump into our poetry discussion, when we see if you have any updates about the library, I know my main thing in youth services is that we're getting ready for summer reading. So we'll have information coming out about our plans for summer reading for youth and adults in the next couple of weeks. We will be doing kind of a hybrid in-person and online program. Cool. From adult services, I think... The main thing is, are the final Northwest Voices of the spring season will be May 26th, 7 p.m. Sarah Merck, graphic journalist, will be with us talking about her very acclaimed recent book, Guantanamo Voices. So that'll be a good one. Seed Library is still going strong. It's a good time to check out seeds, get planting as the weather warms up. And we're working on some Seed Library talks. We're likely going to have one on rock gardening in May and then one on the world of fuchsias in June. So that's what I've got. And I'll add that Guantanamo Voices is published for adults, but on the Great Graphic Novels for Young Adults Committee I was on last year, we selected it as a top 10 title for teens published in 2020. Also, it's a really great piece of journalism that's made by like lots of different contributors and it tells a really important story. So mm. check it out. Come and listen to Sarah Mark. I'm really excited. So let's talk about poetry. Let's talk about poetry. I could talk <laughs> about your Steve library all day long, Austin. But oh, <laughs> I yeah. Use it. April isn't necessarily National Gardening Month. <laughs> <laughs> Every month is National Gardening Month for me. But yeah, it's a problem. I thought I would get started by asking sort of about your background with poetry. Have you always been a poetry reader? Have you always written poetry? So that's actually a funny story. I have not always been a poetry reader. When I was in graduate school at Portland State, I got my master's in in three areas. It was Victorian literature, 19th century American literature, and then composition rhetoric, which is the other thing I teach is English composition. And my first love was the novel. So the Victorians are just the masters of the novel form. It sort of rose in that time. And with 19th century American literature, it was the transcendentalists, say, that really, really spoke to me. So I, I was focusing in those areas and I was I was definitely reading poetry because for your master's degree at Portland State, one option that we had was to take a, a seven hour written test and a three hour verbal test where we were demonstrating, for me at least, you know, mastery over a hundred years of American literature, a hundred years of English literature, and then composition rhetoric theories on top of that. 
And with my test, so I had a person representing each area and the advisor that I'd been working with, with Victorian literature, who's also very focused on the novel, especially the novel written by female authors like the Brontes and Jane Austen. And she adopted a baby in China and she got the call to adopt that baby and fly to China about a week before my exams. And I got the poetry guy. <laughs> giving me my verbal exam. And it was really, oh, really wow. challenging. I had read all these novels. And outside of my classes, I'd been reading poetry, mostly to my daughter. She was uh, six or seven at the time. And so I was kind of combining studying for my exams with her bedtime stories. And we would read Keats' uh, Ode to a Grecian Urn. I remember that over and over <laughs> and over. But I don't think that the study of especially formal Victorian poetry really went with the stress of completing a master's degree while you have two kids. Because <laughs> poetry, especially the older stuff, it requires it requires space. It requires the you know uh, temporal space for you to ponder it. It requires that you have the head space to return to it again and again. And I just I didn't have <laughs> the space or the patience at that time. Mm. And I would say. It wasn't actually until probably until I started advising the Salal Review, the literary arts magazine, which is how mm. Austin and I met. Yes. And when we started looking at and, and I'd been teaching literature, so I'd been teaching people how to appreciate poetry. And that was another thing that I had to find my own way of approaching poetry, because if you take something with a with a rhyme scheme, say, so we've all heard how people analyze poetry. This has a rhyme scheme of A-A-B-B-A-A. And my response was always, yeah, and I'm like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what is interesting about that? So I had to find my own way of teaching poetry and how it uses sounds. And that helped. And then being on the other side of things and working with Austin and the other editors to figure out which poetry we should publish and why. It was those two things coming together that helped me to discover a love of both reading and writing poetry. Wow. Yeah, that was man. That's taken me back to the the Salau review room. That was uh, that was a good time. I loved those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Those were some of the. I mean, when you think about what education is and should be, like the, the romantic vision is always, you know, people sitting around a table and talking about the ideas and yeah. getting so Yeah. It, and there's beauty and art. Yeah. It was all of that. It, it was, was it good. Was really it wonderful. was good. And it was difficult. We, we talked in our in our last episode. Chris uh, was with us and we talked about poetry some and talked about how hard it is to talk about poetry for a lot of people, for all of us, I think, even those of us who read a lot of it. It's difficult sometimes to describe what's attracting you or what's working for you in a poem. And I I loved those kind of conversations for that, too, because it forced us to talk about what we liked, what we didn't like. <laughs> I, I also like I, and I blame Walt Whitman, right? Like before him, we had rules. <laughs> there was a right answer. But I also like that lack of a right. Well, there are right answers and wrong answers, I'm sure. But that that freedom can be really intimidating. But being, again, on the other side of it, being on the publishing side and seeing that there's two factors, right? There's there's complete randomness. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was the year you were there, Austin, but there was one year that I swear was the year of the tree. And we got like 25, <laughs> 30 poems about trees. Yeah. And, yeah. You could have the best poet in the world. But if they're uh, well, maybe not the, the fifth best <laughs> poet in the world. But if we're already publishing two or three poems about trees, that's it. Like we're we've cut you mm -hmm. off. And there's no way the poet can know that. So no, it's nice. No. Yeah. 
it's nice to be on that end of it and to see that that subjectivity extends further than you can see or appreciate on the other side of things. Absolutely. Well, that, you, you know, it, oh, go ahead. Say then. something about what the Salal Review is for people who might not know. Um, yeah, it's the literary arts magazine that uh, is put out by Lower Columbia College. It's won a good handful of both state and national awards. I was the advisor, and Austin was an editor, and I was the advisor for about five years, um, up until about five years ago. I took it over from Joe Green, who's a really well-known regional and uh, I should say national poet. I know that he's been, his work has been read on the Writer's Almanac. So I took it over from him. And Joe also, his mentoring really helped me appreciate some very specific aspects of reading and writing poetry that I still use. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's still kicking around. It's now under the purview of Amber Lemire, Abby Levins, Chris Tower, and they're doing a really fabulous job with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing publication, and it was an amazing experience. I did it for two years uh, under Joe Green, and it's, a, it's an amazing experience for students to get to get in on that editorial process. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know that the students drive most of the decisions, um, which I also think is completely appropriate and really empowering. Yeah. So I'm going to segue a little bit into you mentioned um, teaching poetry and teaching people how to appreciate poetry. How do you approach that? What's your experience been like teaching so, poetry? I have, well, since the pandemic, I've had to, actually, let me work backwards a little bit. <laughs> sure. So, since the pandemic, um, teaching poetry has become incredibly challenging for a couple of mm. reasons. The biggest one, so I wanted to talk about this and then pop back to something Joe Green taught me that I still use. Oh, yeah. um, the biggest challenge has been poetry relies so heavily on sound to create its meaning. And this becomes really challenging if you're a student, because if I'm asking you to demonstrate your understanding of poetry, it is really hard to write about sound. But with um, the restrictions of the pandemic, one of the things that we were very much encouraged not to do was when we had to shift our classes online was to hold synchronous online classes. So forcing folks to meet at the same time because we didn't know if they had you know, kids who needed to use the one computer or what their Wi-Fi was like. So teaching how to appreciate sound in poetry when we're forced into a virtual situation where most of what we're doing is silence has been a real challenge. We've been working through that. But if I and I could talk about that forever, but <laughs> I wanted to jump over to something that Joe taught. He actually taught it, I think, as part of a Northwest Voices workshop. So that collaboration that we have between the library, the Longview Public Library and LCC. I think this is where I learned this from him. And um, what he said was that one of the big differences between poetry and prose is that poetry needs to be aerodynamic. So with poetry, <laughs> I, I remember that line. Yeah. yeah. So that uh, with poetry, we're looking at how sound and images, figurative language, and even the way it appears on the page, all of those things act as a machine that carries the message. And then Joe would say that if the poem isn't aerodynamic, it won't fly. So that's the approach I use. And then I teach them some of the more basic elements of the machine that I think are really interesting. We touch on rhyme a little bit. My person, my, well, one, I, I don't have a lot of restraint or control. So trying to write poetry in a very structured rhyme scheme makes me want to harm a small kitten, right? I just really don't <laughs> like doing it. 
So, um, and, and I remember when I was at the advisor for the Salal, I had to warn the editors that I have a real bias against rhymed poetry. And it's not that I can't appreciate it. It's just not my thing. So we start with rhyme uh, because it's the thing that everybody jumps to and they feel very comfortable with. And there's a really beautiful interview with Lin-Manuel Miranda where he's talking about his choice of rhyme in Hamilton. And he says that he gives early in the musical all of the characters other than Hamilton very simple rhymes. So end rhymes are the, are, is when the rhyme occurs at the end of a line. And so you've got, I remember, I'm John Lawrence in the place to be two pints of Sam Adams, but I'm working on three. So very simple rhymes, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get Hamilton, and he's just got all these complex rhymes. He's got these internal rhymes, which means they don't just happen at the end of the line. He's got slant rhymes, which means things almost rhyme. And Lin-Manuel Miranda said, okay, so what I'm trying to do here, so rhyme was the machine that carried the message. I'm trying to give Lin-Manuel Miranda all these rhymes, so that's the machine, to show that he's really smart, so that's the message. So that's kind of our gateway into poetry. And I like it because it both captures that sense of how sound can carry meaning, which is so important for poetry. And then I can use, it's probably, I think it's probably way cooler than what my students think. And I probably think it's way more (laughs) contemporary. Like they don't even get my Harry Potter references now. So time passes, but it, it does feel like a very cool contemporary place to start as opposed to something from Anne Bradstreet from the 1600s. Yeah, yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, that's fun. I'm a big um, Hamilton <laughs> fan. I'm like, let's talk more about that. <laughs> no, but he does, and he draws from so many different traditions, too. So I think that that is a fun entryway. Yeah, I try. Yeah, I love Hamilton, and I've tried to incorporate him in everything I do. And <laughs> sometimes I find that I've bitten off more than I can chew. Even in American, we have to do all of all of. American poetry in 10 weeks. So Hamilton gets wow. that nod. And <laughs> yeah, that's a compressed. A yeah. Force on Hamilton. There you go. <laughs> Intro to Hamilton. <laughs> that would be fun. That would be so much fun. So did you, you brought some poems you wanted to read? Well, since we were just talking about the machine that carries the message um, yeah. and how Whitman has made my life harder in pretty much every way. <laughs> When I was talking about that just now, I was thinking about Whitman. And there is there is a shorter poem of his that I really, really like. So um, I'm stalling as I both find the page <laughs> okay. and uh, talk about Whitman. So one of the things that, first of all, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the transcendentalists. And Whitman is a transcendentalist. And the easiest way to think of that is um, they look to the self. Uh, so they look to the self. They look to nature, their feelings and individual experience to find truth. Right. So they're coming out of this time where we were looking to authority figures to find truth. You know, uh, if the teacher says it, it must be true. And they're like, no, 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 no. I am perfectly capable of finding this truth. I just need to look inside or I need to be out in nature and be inspired. And another transcendentalist, Emerson, used to call for this thing called a meter making argument which is essentially, okay, buddy, put your money where your mouth is, right? If you are saying that you are the carrier of truth, why are you listening to other people who say that poetry needs to look like this, right, with the regular rhyme scheme, say? So what I love about Whitman's poem, when I heard The Learned Astronomer, which is the one I wanted to talk about, is it has 
all of these things, right? It has, so Whitman was the father of free verse. He just, you know, let it all hang out, man. Just write it as it flows. (laughs) So he uses free verse. And then the question becomes, what makes this a poem? And it's the use of sound in this poem that makes it a, oh, makes it a poem, the sound and line breaks. And what I love is how the sound in this poem carries a transcendental message and it moves beyond rhyme, which you already know how I feel about rhyme. <laughs> so, okay, I'm just going to read it and I'm not sure if I'm going to read the whole thing and then talk about it or read it and talk about it as I go. So this will be okay. fine. We're, we're just going to see how this goes. <laughs> so it's, um, and it's short. So it's called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. And so the first half, I guess I'm going to talk about it as I go. The first half, he's in this non-transcendental space. So he is hearing about astronomy from an expert. And what I love about this, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I love about the first half and then read the first half and then kind of go back and explain where I see it. He uses a lot of cacophony in the first half. And this is my there are four types of sounds that are my absolute favorite sounds to both appreciate and use in poetry. Euphony, cacophony, assonance, and alliteration. Euphony is soft, sweet sounds that usually drive a sweeter message. And then cacophony is the harsh sounds. So they're all the sounds in all of our best profanity that we <laughs> utter, that make us spit, that you know, if you smash your ha- uh, thumb with a hammer, these are the sounds that you will utter. And so cacophony goes with it's associated with negative things. And so what I really like about the first half of this poem, when he's in this non-transcendental situation and he's hearing this lecture, is there's a lot of cacophonic sounds associated with it. Um, so it starts, when I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide and measure them, When I, sitting, heard the astronomer, where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick. So that's the first half. And you've got charts and astronomer. You know, he could have chosen any Mm -hmm. expert. I love that he chose astronomer. You have lectured and applause, tired, sick, unaccountable. So you have all of these sounds that are probably echoing off my microphone right now. (laughs) But they carry that message that this is not where he wants to be, which is very transcendental. And then he flips it with the last uh, three lines where he (laughs) he just leaves. Right. And and looks at the stars for himself. (laughs) It's I'm laughing because, um, like I said, the transcendentalists are my my some of my favorite American writers. And we in my American lit class will read Emerson and Thoreau very soon after we read this poem. And I'm always looking at them thinking, why are you still here? Right. I just told you that to really learn, you need to leave. And yet you're still <laughs> listening to me. But here's the second half. And it's very euphonic. So the sounds become very sweet. So so he's um, he's become tired and sick till rising and gliding out. I wandered off by myself into the mystical moist night air and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. So you have wandered and gliding and the mystical and moist, the M sounds there Mm -hmm. and the silence. So this is one that I really like because it has the kinds of sounds that I I find really interesting that I can actually say something about other than the rhyme scheme (laughs) is. Yeah. What a transition there. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I love drilling down into the sounds like that. That makes me think of last episode. I read 
Richard Hugo, and he's very cacophonous. <laughs> poet. Short, hard sounds. So. T.S. Eliot was kind of my gateway poet, and he has a lot of cacophony, too. I also find that I get very bored with um, happy things. <laughs> so the darkness and cacophony are kind of um, – I mean, there are some – beautiful things that I love. Annabelle Lee by Edgar Allan Poe, I think is mm. the most beautiful poem yeah. I've ever read. And part of it is these beautiful sounds. But my gateway poetry was definitely the darker stuff. <laughs> I can totally understand that. Yeah. I read a love song of J. Alfred Prufrock on our last, wow. on our last episode. And I was telling Austin, I was like, yeah. And then he got in, he got like religion and his poems got nicer and not as interesting. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's a line. Uh, well, I mean, one of the things, backing up a little bit more, Northwest Voices just hosted the former Washington State Poet Laureate, and I might butcher the pronunciation of her name. It's Kathleen Flanagan, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. And she was reading one of her poems, and one of the ones, that, well, she was reading lots of her poems, but <laughs> one of the <laughs> ones I really loved had um, an ending from Charlie Brown. I need to run out and buy um, that book because... She and Elizabeth Austin are now officially my two favorite former (laughs) Washington State Poet Laureates. But I was asking her about illusion because it's something that I'm really curious about. Um, And I I was thinking about it just now because Becky was mentioning um, uh, T.S. Eliot and Prufrock especially. It has a lot of illusions in it, right? So I think that's the one that has those were pearls that were his eyes, which is from The Tempest, I believe. And then it also has a couple of references to the Bible, like with John the Baptist's head on a platter. And it's total plagiarism, right? (laughs) But if you're T.S. Eliot, it's not plagiarism, it's illusion. And the theory is then that apparently he has now loaded all of the content of that scene from The Tempest into, it's either The Hollow Men or Proofrock, it's one of those two poems. And then the same thing with the Bible. But anytime I try to do that kind of illusion in my own poetry, I'm like, no, 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 this is... This is this is plagiarism, right? Should I <laughs> do I need a footnote? Do I need to cite this somewhere? Yeah. And, and I was I was really grilling Kathleen about that, and I'm I'm still not comfortable <laughs> with uh with her, especially if the reference is more obscure, like which is a, right. always a tension, right? Like how much do you demand of your reader? How much do you assume your reader knows? And how much do you care? And I remember we right. would have that conversation in the Salal a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Would people get this? Does it matter if they get it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's cool to see, like, you make those connections in reverse. Like, if we're talking about Hamilton, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda references lots of different pop songs, hip-hop, along with musical theater and all of this different stuff in his background. And sometimes when he says a lyric or, or there's, like, a piece of music in a song, you can recognize it from something you knew before, but then sometimes the opposite happens when you're listening to something and you're like, oh, I recognize <laughs> that from Hamilton. <laughs> and I think that's the same, too, with literature, how it kind of can talk back and forth to each other through time, I think is really amazing. Yeah. There's a interview between that I want to hear. I'm taking a creative writing class right now, and the instructor of that class was saying, apparently there's an interview between what's Amanda Gorman, is that her name? Oh, right, right, yeah. And Anderson Cooper, where she talks about that, and I very much want to see that interview. Yeah, her her inaugural poem reminded me a lot of Lin-Manuel Miranda, <laughs> for example. 
that Charlie, that poem you're talking about of Kathleen's, that Charlie Brown poem, it's so seamless too. It feels totally natural in the poem. Even if you didn't recognize the lines, it, you know, and I think she talked about that a little bit. I, I, cause I do feel like sometimes people, when I read for Salal or what I read for Tin House, people would try to force, uh, allusions into their, or too many allusions into their work. And there's like an aspect of it that's just like feel. But there again, that's hard to talk about. <laughs> it's just right or not. Yeah. I know, right? Um, that yeah, reading was I, tremendous though. Yeah, I got, I got teared up at the end there. I, I really did. That was, that was nice. And I have a hard time. This is another thing that I, I struggle with. This is Heidi's confessional hour, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing all the, the fights I have with poetry. But when I'm at a poetry reading, you know, poetry is so dense and it is something that shouldn't reveal everything on the first reading. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to listen with such intensity. And so that's mm-hmm. another thing I really liked about Kathleen's poetry. Like I wasn't catching every line, but lines mm-hmm. just kept almost assaulting me. <laughs> they just the image or the sound and my little ears would perk up and I'd just be completely captivated for a moment. And then my brain would have to take a break because that's the way my brain works. And then she she was just coming back in regularly with these lines that would just suck me in. And I really loved that. Yeah, she's so good. And she's still... I, did you read her previous collection, Plume, the one about Hanford? Did you not, read that one? Not yet. Oh, that one's really good too. But she does really good at both doing really, really intimate and also sweeping. Like I don't know how she, she does politics in her poems really well. And I think she read one at that reading about America, which is, I could sort of imagine not working. But <laughs> when she does it, it works really, really well and it doesn't sacrifice any of the intimacy for being so sweeping. I always uh, leave something like that really heat up and energized about language and poetry and stuff like that. That's the best feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's addictive for sure. So you mentioned the transcendentalists. I was going to ask, what are, what are some of your favorite poets? Um, let's see. Uh, there's so many ways to answer that. <laughs> I would, uh, so Keats and, and Whitman and I are slowly starting to become friends. It's, it's been a long <laughs> journey for us. Um, I do love Poe's Annabelle Lee just for its beauty. Mm, right. Elizabeth Austin, she has a poem called, so Washington State, former Washington State Poet Laureate. She has a poem called The Girl Who Goes Alone. And when I'm not doing bookish things, I really love hiking and backpacking. Mm. And that's one that I, I gave a talk at Laura Columbia College's – actually, this is a roundabout way of answering your question, so I'm going to do it this way. I gave a talk at um, Laura Columbia College's Community Conversations, and the theme it, – it's a lecture series where you take somebody who is really passionate about something and you give them about an hour to nerd out on it. And the theme, the term that I gave the lecture was on how poetry makes the – or on making the world a better place. And my mm. theme – was on how poetry makes the world a better place. And I chose beauty, right? And I brought in Edgar Allan Poe's Annabelle Lee, which is one of my favorite poems. Although Poe himself isn't one of my favorite poets, but I love that poem. And um, protest, right? Poetry can be protest, and that also makes the world a better place. And another one of my gateway poets was uh, Wilfred Owen, and he was a World mm-hmm. War One poet. And he wrote, it's a poem called, and I'm just 
so proud that I learned how to pronounce the title, but it's called Dolce Decorum Est. And it's um it's a poem from the perspective of a World War One soldier. And there's a scene in there where people are getting gassed. Right. And they're pulling people out. And, and he's describing the experience of, um, you know, being gassed by mustard gas. And I sometimes will put that in contrast with an earlier World War One poem that I think is by Robert. Graves. And it's one of those, you know, for England, we go and this will be glorious and we will fight for our country. It's very much like that. And then Wilfred Owen gives you the more tangible experience. And so he was also one of my, I guess, my favorite poets or my gateway poets. So I read Elizabeth Austin's The Girl Who Goes Alone. And I can't remember what random excuse, probably inspiration, because I think it's really empowering or empowerment. Like I just labeled it something random so I could talk about it. <laughs> so I had beauty, I had protest, I had inspiration, and then a fourth thing, which will come to me 10 minutes from now when you're asking me a different question. Uh, so, and then T.S. Eliot, too, because like I said, I don't like happy, happy poems. But those are those are some of my favorites right now. Mm. And what has it been like for you? I asked Kathleen this question, too. What has it been like for you to be a poet during COVID? Um, so that... All right. So what I what I have experienced during COVID is I've always so I I love the transcendentalists and one and Thoreau is one of the most famous transcendentalists and one of Thoreau's. He's not a poet, uh, but one of his most famous lines is just simplify, simplify. And I felt like before the pandemic that I was doing that, that I was simplifying my life. And then um, when all the gyms closed down and I was like, oh, my goodness. How long have I been a member of three separate gyms, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I was able to take my what I thought was a very simplified life and continue to prune and get rid of things that I felt like I ought to do that but but that weren't serving me. It was a time of dread of everything. Mm -hmm. So I was really trying to pick and choose the things that I didn't dread. So it's funny, like I love going to yoga, but I would dread going to yoga. And... I was talking to my creative writing class about this yesterday, actually. I dread writing. It's one of those things. And I think it's because part of it is because I read and write for a living. Right? I teach English. So it's hard to separate my work brain from from my writing brain, my creative writing brain. And the best, like creative writing at its best, you are just flowing, right? It's like meditation at its best you're completely relaxed you're completely in the moment and you are completely content with whatever is happening right in the moment you're not worried about the past or the future and so i was sharing with my creative writing class yesterday that i i dread writing because he was asking about how our experience goes and i was mm-hmm. like heck these are strangers i'll be honest with them and and the, he stopped me the teacher and he was like how many of the rest of you feel that way and they're all like uh, yeah me me yeah me too <laughs> so that was kind of validating So all of this is to say that during the pandemic, writing was something, one of my ought to's that I dreaded, that I pruned when I was simplifying everything and really trying to. So William Stafford says that whenever you get writer's block, the first thing you need to do is lower your standards. Mm -hmm. So I was like lowering my life standards over and over and over again. And then now that we're coming out of it, and I think it helps that it's spring. Right. Mm -hmm. Everything is better in the spring. So now that we're coming out of it, 
I'm I'm starting to miss a few of the things that I cut. Like I, I stopped meditating. I've missed meditating. I've stopped doing yoga. And not only I, but my body is missing that. And I also have missed writing both poetry mm. and prose. And so what I started doing, so I, the first thing I did was I needed an external impetus. Um, so I signed up for creative writing classes put mm. out by Literary Arts, which it's a once a week commitment. Uh, you're not getting graded at anything, mm. but you still feel that pressure to produce for me I need that and then and I want to cycle back to that pressure in a second because it's the other thing that makes writing poetry really hard but then the other thing I, I needed to do now that I have homework which was fun <laughs> uh, I needed to carve out a space in my day that would immediately put me in the right frame of mind that I could come to and so I realized that I can't set a timer and write because I'll game it right I will just wait out that timer and I'll get really stressed <laughs> And I can't set a page limit and write because then I feel like a failure about three lines in. But I can drink and write. And it doesn't it doesn't have to be booze, right? So if I'm writing this morning, <laughs> if I make a pot of coffee, right, you can't game that. You cannot chug hot coffee. But there's a lot of wandering that that allows you. You can stare out a window. You can write a bit. So it cre- And then at night, it, I can pour... It has to be a glass of something you can't chug. So like a really intense red wine that's probably, you know, a little too bold for all the cool wine connoisseurs, but you have to sip it <laughs> at night that that works. So I can I've carved out space either before dinner or first thing in the morning, have a glass of something that I can't chug and then alternate writing with playing solitaire, which I think gives you the same kind of pondery feeling that walking does. Mm-hmm. And that has it's been a very gentle reentrance to writing that I think is really I have to combine it with external impetus like I ought to do this. But mm-hmm. at least while I'm teaching, because, you know, teaching sucks up a lot of my creative energy in a good way. <laughs> um, but um, that has worked. And then the other problem on the flip side of uh, writing always is unless somebody is telling you to do it, one, you don't have to do it. And two, Mm -hmm. you never know when it's finished. Mm -hmm. And then you never quite know who you're writing for, which is tough. You know, we were talking about what you can ask versus what you don't care what you ask. I'm I'm always going back and forth between those highbrow audiences. Is this good enough? With Mm -hmm. the more general audience, is this accessible enough? Mm. So... I'm coming out of COVID with a much better writing practice, but I think the break that it forced me to take wasn't fun in the moment, but was good overall. I think breaks are important even, and I think the only way we often take them is if we're forced to. (laughs) Yes, that's true. That's true. I love that about the drinking. Um, (laughs) That's that, you know, that, that makes sense to me because there's so, so often I will get ideas or, launch into something when I'm forced into a space of like slowing down. So like on long drives where I'm just like there and, or if I have to wait for something, you know, and I'm stuck, my mind will start working better. Um, that's, I, I really, really like that. I like Yeah. That. that made me think when I was in college, I went to a college in Michigan, but I'm from this area and I would write letters to my friends. And when I do that, I'd make like a cup of coffee and I'd write until my coffee got cold and then I put it in the mail. 
<laughs> it's perfect. And, and coffee is nice <laughs> in some ways because if you try to do this with too much wine, you're going to end up with, <laughs> unless you're Hemingway, you're going to end up with some <laughs> limited productivity. Yeah. Could you read us something that you've done? Sure. So this is one that I haven't published yet, but it has, I, I just love the arrogance there, yet. Uh, <laughs> so this is one I haven't, I'm, I'm going to keep it because this is my favorite poem that I've written. It's one I haven't published yet, but I, I really love it. It has those illusions that I am still a little bit hesitant about, but it's got those. It also has euphony and cacophony, and it has assonance. It probably has alliteration too, but I've, so assonance is the repetition of vowel sounds and alliteration is the repetition of consonant sounds. And I've been really enamored of assonance lately. I don't know why. It's one of those Austin was talking about sometimes like the way you talk about things is really casual and not definitive. There's just something about the ah sound that I'm really liking right now. And it seems like every word that contains that sound just works. And I don't think this poem has so many of them, but the I sound is, uh, and that's also, I think, partly Hamilton inspired Rise Up. Mm-hmm. It seems like ri- this poem doesn't have it, but Rise Up has ended up in a lot of my stuff lately, too. So it has nods to Anne Sexton, which I can cycle back around to after I read it. And it has allusions to Wuthering Heights. And I meant to double check. It's um, It also has... Lines that I have just straight up stolen from D.H. <laughs> one of D.H. Lawrence's novels. And it's either from The Rainbow or Women in Love. Those are two novels that he wrote, and they feature the same female characters. And these female characters are really problematic. They're, they're passionate. They're earthy. They're not proper at all. And I don't think these novels got banned like Lady Shatterley's Lovers did. Lady Shatterley's Lover did. And that's another D.H. Lawrence novel. But it was certainly one that folks at the time were frowning about, especially these girls' bad behavior. And I thought that that fit really well, in addition to I really like the sound of the lines. Okay, so this one I'll read straight through without pausing. And then if you want me to talk about it, I can. It's a love letter to Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights, because Heathcliff is just so amazing. And essentially, I'm like, Heathcliff, come on, right? I'm your girl, right? Why why are you wasting your time with Kathy? Okay. So, dear Heathcliff, I, too, am capable of all passion. Passion is the rapt trespass of substituting ginger for cayenne, a tempest in a bone china cup of summer. You would smash when I asked for almond milk. What a cliche. Nellie, I am Heathcliff. Shatter that teapot. Refuse to tolerate lactose. Ride the moors, grip life between our thighs, attached by acts of man and poison salvation, and romantic with a capital and shattering tsunami of Victorian passion. Oh, do once more, my heart's darling, hear me this time. We have rent the satin, and now we sit in breakfast ecstasy that matches that crackling darkness, a scratching calico, our one nod to Victorian domesticity. Sincerely yours. Mm. Love that. Thank Love you. That. Yeah. So, yeah, that line, um, the Moors line. I, I just, oh, yeah, ride the Moors and grip life between our thighs. That's the lift from D.H. Lawrence. That's the one I'm never <laughs> sure about. And then there's two lines that are straight Is from. That, that's the yeah. line that just, like, lives in your head. Uh, well, it does now. Yeah. It was born in D.H. Lawrence's book, but it, right. it yeah. It, but I think sometimes, like, if you can't, uh, like, remember where something is from, it's just because it's, like, nestled in there, right? 
I mean, grip life. They were talking about horseback riding. I guess I should say that. But <laughs> grip life between our thighs is just, I mean, isn't that just not the best line? And it's got those eye sounds that I'm kind of mm-hmm. with right now. And there's two lines from Wuthering Heights, too. And these ones are set off. You can't see the poem on the page from where you're sitting. But they're set off and they're in italics. So I think those ones are more clear. And there's that wonderful line from Kathy, Nellie, I am Heathcliff, right, that shows that that union that they had. And then there's a couple of books that always make me cry. Uh, one is Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, the, the end line where Sidney's going to the gallows. And he's like, it's a far, far greater thing than I have ever done. I'm like, Sidney, don't die. <laughs> <laughs> and then the line that I stole Oh, do once more. Oh, my heart's darling. Hear me this time. That's when like we get we get Heathcliff's love for Kathy. It happens early in the book, but the book pops back and forth in time. And it's when he thinks he sees Kathy's ghost and he's running to the window. Right. This is a very romantic book. Right. He's running to the window and he's reaching out and he's like cutting himself on the broken glass because the narrator thought he saw Kathy's ghost. Right. The narrator's such a jerk. He smashes her fingers in the window and, and he goes like, oh, Kathy, hear me. And it's just such a powerful moment. Right. That she's dead and he just still wants her. So those two lines are lifted, too. Hmm. I shouldn't say lifted. I should be more professional about it. <laughs> Those are my literary illusions. And you mentioned Anne Sexton too. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm frantically while I'm talking to you, <laughs> thumbing through my 700 page book of American literature to find it. Um, I'm stalling a little bit. There it is. No, I lied. It is actually Adrian Rich. Um, oh, Adrian Rich. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Adrian Rich and Sexton and Sylvia Plath kind of live in the same place sure. in my head. <laughs> But this one is Adrian Rich. And there's this stanza from it's a poem that she writes called Snapshots of a Daughter in Law. And let me read a little bit from the first section and then I'll, I'll, I'll read the second section and sort of cycle back to there's a couple of lines from my poem. And what I like about this poem that I wrote is so the Victorians are so buttoned up and One of the things that I'm really interested in, I had a graduate school teacher once who said that all writers usually have one story and they just keep reworking that story. And I was taking a class on Hawthorne at the time. And uh, you could look at Hawthorne and be like, yep, yep, that's true. (laughs) And so one of my preoccupations that I'm often trying to work out, especially through poetry, um, is that tension between essentially... Let's see. Well, if we're keeping in terms of being a woman, because that's the the, the tension I feel, um, it's that tension between your Jane side and your Bertha side. So Jane is the very proper buttoned up uh, girl from Jane Eyre, right? She, I mean, Mr. Rochester wants to marry her, and she's like, I can't marry you. It, would, it just wouldn't be right. And she can't marry him because of Bertha, who's the mad woman in the attic. That's his wife who he's just locked up, right? And she's just full of unbridled emotion and passion, and Jane is very pale and proper. And all the, not all, Several prominent literary critics have said that that's what you have to do when you're a Victorian writer and you're writing about women. You have to split the woman into two because a woman can't be both. She can't be both prim and passionate. And so it's funny because Charlotte Bronte wrote Jane Eyre and Emily Bronte wrote this very romantic Wuthering Heights. So these two art forms are existing at the same time. 
And folks have gone back and forth about whether or not, especially from about the time it was published to about the time of the 1930s, they go back and forth on whether or not Wuthering Heights was any good because it was so over the top with its emotion. And so I was playing with that, right? Like that we can smash these constraints, Heathcliff. You can be with me. We'll get a cat, right? We'll be proper in that way, but everything else. <laughs> but some of the imagery, especially with the with the teapot, came from Anne Sexton. Mm-hmm. No, darn it, Adrian Rich. Adrian Rich. <laughs> yes. Oh, you almost caught some profanity there. And <laughs> so in her snapshots of a daughter-in-law, she does that other thing with poetry that I mentioned that I really love, the assonance and alliteration. And I wanted to read just a little bit of where she kind of sets you up for how she's feeling about the female experience. And then I'll read the part that inspired some of the the china and teapot imagery in my poem and sounds like ah, ah, right? Lots of ah sounds. So she writes in her second stanza of Snapshots and a Daughter-in-Law, your mind now moldering like wedding cake, heavy with useless experience, rich with suspicion, rumor, fantasy, crumbling to pieces under the knife edge of mere fact. And what I love about, oh, in the prime of your life, let's name it that stanza. But I love the use of the M sounds there. You have mind mm-hmm. moldering and mirror. And then the fact that the moldering is like the wedding cake, it tells you a lot about mm-hmm. the mental state of a, of a life. And one of the things that I really Alliteration can do two things that I really love that goes back to Joe's, Joe Green's idea that uh, you can load a lot of meaning onto sound, which will make a poem really aerodynamic. Alliteration creates emphasis. So if you want to emphasize an assonance, right? The only difference is consonants versus vowels. I don't even know why they get their own words. <laughs> like uh, they make my life complicated, but um, alliteration can emphasize things and it can connect things. And I especially love it when alliteration connects things that are unexpected that you wouldn't have thought to put together. And so this one, mind moldering and mirror connects this idea that, you know, our, our mind is just essentially rotting away and it's diminished. You know, mirror mm. comes much later in that stanza. And then when you also add the simile moldering like wedding cake, you get very quickly and very economically the reason. So that's how that's the second stanza. She sets that up. And then in the second section of the poem, in the fourth, the fourth, fifth and sixth stanzas, but especially the fourth You'll hear a lot of cacophony. I think you hear a lot of assonance and you definitely hear, hear a lot of uh, alliteration with the S sounds. And it's some of these images that were inspiring some of the images that I have with the, the smashing of the tea, shattering of the teapot. So uh, Rich writes, banging the coffee pot into the sink. She hears the angels chiding and looks out past the raked gardens to the sloppy sky. Only a week since they said, have no patience. The next time it was, be insatiable, then save yourself, others you cannot save. Sometimes she's let this tap stream scald her arm, a match burned to her thumbnail, or held her hand above the kettle's snout right in the woolly steam. They are probably angels, since nothing hurts her anymore except each morning's grit blowing into her eyes. So I just love especially the alliteration there, right? You have insatiable and save and scald mm-hmm. and snout and steam. So you have these 
um, sounds that connect pain with desire, which I think is mm. really, I mean, it's not cool, right? That's not cool. <laughs> but it's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, did you, do you want to read another of your poems before we go? Um, sure. There was, there were actually two that I was wanting to read and uh, dear, he's or both of I, them. Yeah. Well, no, you've heard the first one already, which is great. Oh, okay. okay. Um, but Addict is the one that was most recently published. It's, it was published in the Humanities Review, which I'm really proud of for two reasons. One is I understand that corporations are bad, but you can buy it on Amazon. So it's the first thing that I've published where the publication can actually be purchased somewhere, which is so cool. And then probably more importantly, they featured Kim Stafford in their issue just before. Mm. So I'm published with the people who published Kim Stafford. So um, this is nerdy nerdy fangirling right here. (laughs) Um, So this is, uh, it hasn't come out yet. Um, The review comes out really soon. And one of the other things I like about this poem, the other reason I wanted to choose it, probably it's going to have a lot of ah sounds, but it also does the very first poem I published. I wrote in response to probably that same work, workshop that Joe Green gave us. It might not have been. He's given a couple, but he said that you could take a poem, make it a very concrete image and then give it an abstract title. So the very first poem that I published did that. It was an image. I was at a conference and there's a lot of food at conferences and (laughs) I can't resist free things, especially if it's food. And so I was feeling very gluttonous at the time. And there was a balloon from something that had floated up to the ceiling. And I thought, what a waste, right? Like what a waste of environmental resources to see that balloon, especially. And we didn't even know about the shortage of helium then. So I wrote a poem um, called Gluttony. And then it had the image of that balloon, which I, I loved the play that, so it was a very um, abstract concept, gluttony with a very concrete image. So this poem that I'm gonna read is, I like it because it brackets it, the oldest one that I published and the newest one that I published. This one is called Addict. And um, so don't try this at home children, but I was hung over one morning. <laughs> And I was frustrated. I had too much wine with dinner the night before, and I was a little bit hungover. And I was just frustrated, right? I, I didn't want to be in that state. And it's sort of that oh, you promise yourself things will get better. And then I'm like, I know at some point I'm going to have too much wine with dinner again, and I'm going to be sitting here with a headache, feeling kind of bloaty, just frustrated with myself yet again. And I was sitting in my backyard, and I, and the things that I saw kind of went with the feelings that I had. And so I titled it Addict, and I'm not being self-confessional there. It just seemed to go most economically with this poem. So it's called Addict. Uh, no, Addict, not Addict. So here it goes. Still below the horizon, light, too diffuse to steam dew from lawns and laundry, left to dry another day. Skinny jeans and ragged socks and cotton shirts stitched in Taiwan. Extra buttons still tucked just inside the hem. Rises. Crests the mother curve. Pulls vapor from rusted iron. Furniture left to brave spring storms and neighborhood censure. In front of an adolescent tree planted with optimism and a too small shovel. Flies dance. Backlit. And dawn bathes this ballet of backlit flies, warms living word, inspires all the morning to rise up. And then you've got that Hamilton nod at the end there. 
So I liked the um, I liked the play of contrast here in imagery between, you know, you have negative things and things that have been forgotten or I don't want to say failed. But, you know, you've got the, the laundry that's been left and the flies. But then you have that and, and you know, rusting furniture. But then you have that optimism of sunrise and sunlight. And I feel like that eye sound is really captures that uplifting, hopeful feel like this time I'm going to do it right. So I just I like that. I like that it ends with a hopeful, hopeful note, but that the imagery just makes it more complex than that. It also seems like that image of the spare button is like something can still be repaired. Yeah. 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 And you can't see this poem, but one of the things I was trying to do was play with end breaks. And I think I get a little too fancy here sometimes. Um, There's a really great Emily Dickinson poem where she she not only breaks a line, but she breaks a stanza in a really strategic spot. And she doesn't have any punctuation there, so it's enjambed. It's um, the poem that starts, Success is Counted Sweetest. And if you read it the one way, you understand it as we typically understand success, which is, you know, the people who understand success are the ones who really want it and succeed. But then if you read it and you honor the enjambments and you don't stop at the end of the stanza, you realize that um, success is best understood by the people who fail mm-hmm. is what she's actually saying there. So I, I love the way that line breaks can be tricksy. And sometimes mm-hmm. I think I try to get a little too fancy with that. <laughs> But it's one of those curse you, Walt Whitman. There are no rules anymore. So where to break a line is where I feel like breaking a line. So at least there, there's a reason. That and the end line often gets the slightest bit of emphasis, which, mm-hmm. again, you can. It's. I wish that whenever people did poetry readings, they handed out copies so that I could see it. As I read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I would very much like to clear the rest of my day and talk about poetry the whole time now. <laughs> this has been really, really wonderful. This has been great. It's been so nice to have the opportunity to geek out on something that I really, really love to talk about. Yeah, I'm going to go read a bunch of stuff now and go get some Adrian Rich. And he, with that poem you just read, you said it was going to be coming out in Humanities Review? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fantastic. So thanks for coming on to the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks, everybody, for listening to your show. And my shelf. <laughs> or mine. <laughs> I'm Becky. I'm Heidi. I'm Austin. Bye. 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 Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.